Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's turn to Micah chapter 2. And we're going to read 6 through 13. Micah 2, 6 through 13. Says the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Do not speak out, so they speak out. But if they do not speak out concerning these things, reproaches will not be turned back. It is being said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to the one walking uprightly? Recently, my people have arisen as an enemy. You strip the robe off the garment from unsuspecting passers-by, from those returned from war. The women of my people you evict, each one from her pleasant house, from her children you take my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place of rest, because of the uncleanness that brings on destruction, a painful destruction. If a man Walking after wind and falsehood had told lies and said, I will speak out to you concerning wine and liquor. He would be spokesman to this people. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate and go out by it. So their king goes on before them. And the Lord at their head. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we study your word, as we hear your word preached, that you would again teach us from it. Lord, we need your spirit to be able to understand this word. And so we ask that you would give us your spirit, that he would be at work in our midst, and that every one of our thoughts and meditations would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So a bit of review as we come back to Micah. It's, it's easy to forget the context of our uh, minor prophets. Uh, the previous section, you remember that uh, Micah, who is, who is prophesying during the time of the king, king Hezekiah, King Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, same time as Isaiah is prophesying as well. Isaiah is prophesying of the servant of the Lord, of uh, the, the glorious coming of the Messiah. And here Micah is also denouncing the cities of Judah, the southern kingdom. Uh, along during this time, somewhat simultaneously, is the uh, dragging of Israel off their land into exile. So they are seeing the destruction of the northern kingdom as Micah and Isaiah are prophesying to the southern kingdom. And destruction is coming. God has told them that they are going to be destroyed. Um, I am planning against this family a calamity he says. And so he, he is announcing that coming judgment. He is, they have filled up 
they have filled up their, uh, the level of sin, right? Manasseh and uh, the, the kings of Israel had made the city of Jerusalem or the cities of, um, of Judah filled with blood. And, and now it's at the point where God has determined to drag them off the land. And uh, this is what we're reading about. So uh, the first part of chapter 2, which we went through last uh, evening service, was about um, the oppressors oppressing. It's the elites who are oppressing the people. It's the uh, leaders of the people who are um, oppressing them. And then we get to verse 6, where we take it up tonight. So uh, verse 6 begins with this quote, and all through this section, 6 through 13, it's very difficult to tell who is speaking. Is it God who is speaking? Is it false prophets who are speaking? Is it the prophet who's speaking? And if you read through the commentaries, no one agrees on who's speaking about different, you know, who's speaking at different sections. And so... Um, I've done my best to figure out what is going on here. And so who is speaking in this first section? Do not speak out, so they speak out. But if they do not speak out concerning these things, reproaches will be turned back. Um, and then it goes on and says, Is it being said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these his doings? And then it turns to the words of God. Do not my words do good to the one walking uprightly? And so I think what's going on here is the false prophets are forbidding the true prophets from speaking out. The false prophets are trying to suppress the true prophets of the word, forbidding them to speak out, and yet, yet they, the, the false prophets speak. Um, if true prophets don't speak, reproaches will not be turned back. Right? If they do not speak out concerning these things, reproaches will not be turned back. And yet the false prophets don't want truth being spoken. They don't want it to be spoken. They don't want there to be a turn back. I mean, all through the Old Testament, when the prophets came to the people of God, isn't that the, what, what happened? The false prophets are like, peace, everything's good. And the true prophets were coming along and saying, no, repent. And, of course, the kings don't like to hear, no, repent, <laughs> right? The kings like to hear everything is going fine, prosperity, um, everything is good. And so verse 7 comes along. Is it being said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these his doings? I think, again, this is the false prophets banking on God's patience. They're just banking on God's patience. They... Um, they are questioning whether these events, these events of destruction and prophesying of destruction are from him at all. Only the godly are able to understand afflictions are from God and for our sanctification. Right? It's only the godly who understand that. These false prophets, these children of Israel do not get that. And so they're sort of recasting God as... This isn't his doing. This, he, you know, he's, he's, he's not being impatient. Calvin, Calvin said at this point, Truly mankind does not understand why evil overtakes them. In spite 
of the fact that God confronts them and admonishes them quite openly, they are still unable to recognize the source of their misery, even when God touches them with his hand. Let us realize, therefore, that whenever misfortune and trouble overtake us, we are experiencing God's hand by means of which he corrects, corrects us whenever we fall short. I'd like my children to be listening to me. Okay? I love you guys, but you're distracted right now. So whenever, whenever misfortune and trouble overtake us, we are experiencing God's hand by means of which he corrects us whenever we fall short. And in so doing, God makes us look to him again. Right? God presses us down, affliction comes, and what God is trying to do is get us to trust and depend upon him again. Right? Let us submit ourselves to God's switch, he says. Let us submit ourselves to his spanking in order to profit from it. That's what the false prophets won't allow. They won't allow God's switch. They say God is patient. These things are not from God. This affliction, whatever it is, it's not from God, and, and we're going to be okay. They're just completely telling lies. And Calvin says what the prophet should say is, no, no, this is from the hand of the Lord, and if it's heavy and hard, it's for the purpose that he might correct us and train us and discipline us for the purpose of righteousness. Now, that's hard to accept. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. When things don't go well, we believe God is against us. Right? When your body breaks down, you're like, God, why? Why are you doing this? And we get all mystified about it. Why would God do this? Well, God disciplines his children, and he scourges those whom he loves. And so to remember that in the pain, in the sorrow, in the difficulty is godliness it's godliness and then and then to not become bitter about it i'd rather have a father who neglects me we say in our minds i'd rather have a father in heaven who leaves me alone like the end of psalm 13 when david says turn your eyes away from me that i might enjoy myself again right we say that of god and yet um, the attention of God Almighty, who only ever and always does good, is wonderful, is what we should crave, is what we need. Verse 7b, do not my words do good to the one walking uprightly. In other words, what is happening, what is going on, my words of rebuke, aren't they good for the godly? They're good for the godly. Proverbs 17.10, a rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. One rebuke goes deep into a godly person. Now, that's hard, because I'm proud. And when I get rebuked, my pride is like, um, you know, it's like when you, you put up the shields for the, the starship, Right? <laughs> you get rebuked and the shields go up, right? And it's pride. It's your pride that begins to deflect all the other, what you see as, as um, weapons against you. But that's foolish, and that's what a fool does. But, but a godly man or woman who knows 
they're sinful, who knows, who, who does not think too highly of himself, receives a rebuke, and it goes deep into him or her. Deep into her. They actually, when you receive a rebuke, you stop and consider how true it is. Oh, man. It's very hard, right? Our defense mechanisms go up quite quickly. Um, what does it mean to walk uprightly? What does it mean to walk uprightly? Calvin says, whenever we condemn our own sins and long to come to God, our only desire being to please God. That's what it means to walk uprightly. Our only desire being to please God. Right? Not to please our flesh, not to please our, our anybody else. Not to please those who are observing us, but solely having the, the gaze of God in our minds and then walking that way. So we're vain creatures, right? We give a lot of heed to the eyes of other people. And we, we, um, we put up images of us that, that, um, that put ourselves in the, in the best light. And, and we're so consumed with what other people see in us that we forget that, more importantly, God is watching, God is gazing. And not only does he see what you look like, he sees every one of the intents of your thoughts all the time. The intents of your thoughts he sees. And so um, Calvin says, you want to walk uprightly well, condemn your own sins and long to come to God and have as your only desire to be pleasing to him. It's pretty simple, right? Please God. How do you please God? Obey the word. Believe in him. Live by faith, right? And not by your own imagination. That's what it means to walk uprightly, to pursue God, to hate our sins, to love God, and to desire to please him. Um, do you have, have you had that thought this week? In the midst of your busy week, when, when, the, the urgent has come upon you and you've had to care for your children and they've taken 22 hours of your 24-hour day, right? And then you had to homeschool them after that. <laughs> or, or, you know, work has been heavy and um, new and just uh, you work all day and then you think about your work all night. Have you had time to stop and think, how, how have I pleased my Heavenly Father? How have I desired to honor God this week? Have I desired that? Have, have I even asked the question? So mornings are so important to set the tone for your day, and this should be the question you ask yourself when you get up after giving thanks, after getting up out of bed and praying and saying, thank God, thank you, Lord, for your mercies that are new every morning, and then saying and thinking and meditating on how can I please God today? What can I do differently this week? What sins did I give myself last week? What grumbling and complaining can I put to death this week? And just trust that God is, is good and is honing me, right? How may I please my Heavenly Father? Is that, 
is asking that question. If you're caught up in a, in a sin that you love, asking that question becomes a burden to your flesh. And, and it's a downer, right? If you're pursuing a sin and you love that sin, whether it's your vanity or it's greed or it's lust, if you're pursuing that sin, you don't want to ask that question, how may I please the Lord? Because you want to please your flesh. So you, don't, you just leave off the question. Right? You just keep leaving off the question. But it would be a weapon. It would be, it would be helpful to all of us if we woke up and said, how may I please my heavenly Father this day? And, and do you delight to please God? Is that your bread and butter? Is that your joy? Pleasing God. How may I honor him? How may I walk by faith? How may I testify to his greatness? How may I love my siblings? How may I love my friends? How may I work as unto him? How, how, how might my lips speak of him, uh, praises of him? And that delights the Lord. But does it please you? Is that what motivates you? Verse 4, no, verse 8 Notice what it says. Again, these are the words of the Lord. Recently, my people have arisen as an enemy. My people have arisen as an enemy. The people are set against God. God now views them as an enemy. And yet, he still calls them my people. My people have arisen as an enemy. Even after all their rebellion, God still calls them my people. But it exposes their ingratitude, right? It exposes how far they've moved away from him. God considers, God, even though he has claimed them as his own, considers them an enemy. And why? Because of their poor treatment of other people, of this that we've spoken of before. You strip the robe off the garment from the unsuspecting passers-by, from those returning from war. Right, stripping the robe off of those who have just been through affliction, stripping any comfort that somebody has after they've just gone through warfare is wicked. Right? You're not adding to their comfort, you're taking away from their comfort. That's oppression. Right? They're oppressing those who are weary even further. And then verse 9, uh, whenever scripture speaks of women and children or orphans and widows, you know that that you're going to hear of God's special, particular love for widows and orphans, for the weak, right? And, and he, so the women of my people, you evict each one from her pleasant house. The women are being thrown out of their property. They're being thrown out of their comfortable homes. They're being th thrown out of their, uh, the provision that has been brought to them. And then it says, from her children, you take my splendor forever. Now, there's something there that um, I want to think about. So the people are being, so the elites, those doing the oppressing, are poorly treating the people, robbing the unsuspecting stranger afflicting women by eviction, withholding God's splendor from her children. Now imagine a household with a violent mother. 
Right? Imagine a household where the, the mother is violent. It could be the father, but I chose to go with the mother because there are households with violent mothers. Right? Imagine a household with a violent mother. Not only does she cause her children pain, she actively sins against them. She beats them. But it's a double sin. The, the sins of, of mothers and fathers are double sins because, one, they cause pain and it's, it's that immediate sin, but it also causes God's splendor to be obscured in the eyes of that child. And that may be the worst part of an abusive home. That may be the worst part of affliction is not only do you sin against somebody, but you taint their understanding of God himself. This is why those people from abusive homes have a hard time believing God is good. They have a hard time believing that God is gentle, that God loves, that God uh, embraces and is mindful and is tender and is merciful, that they have a hard time believing that God is even disposed to love. So when we sin against our children, mothers and fathers, we obscure God's splendor. Every sin is therefore a double sin. It causes pain and it obscures God's character. And that's what this says. The women of my people you evict, each one of, from her pleasant home, and from her children you take my splendor forever. You're taking my glory away from the children. And that is, that is a, a terrible affliction, right? That is terrible affliction when, when you're ministering as a pastor or elder or as a friend to somebody who has been abused by those who were supposed to love them tenderly. You have to completely rehaul their theology, You have to completely rehaul how they think about authority. You have to completely rehaul all of that, that, um, those relationships that they have. They they will have a hard time trusting somebody else. They will certainly have a hard time um, trusting those in positions of authority. And that means, therefore, they'll have a hard time trusting God, who is the authority of authorities. And so, parents, remember that. Your sins against your children are double sins, and you are obscuring God's splendor to them if you, if you are being harsh to them. That is a sin that you should deal with immediately and that you should confess to the elders so that they can help you love your children. Verse 10. Arise and go, for this is no place of rest because of the uncleanness that brings on destruction, a painful destruction. So arise and go. Who's being commanded here? This is God commanding the people of Israel. Their conduct must be followed by banishment, by exile, so that the land may have its Sabbath rest. Second Chronicles, the very end of Second Chronicles, chapter 36, 20 to 21 We read this, those who escaped from the sword 
He carried away to Babylon, okay, so it's speaking of the exile that's being prophesied here, that's coming. And they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Jeremiah prophesied just after Micah and, and, and Isaiah. Until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, all the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. Now notice what it, how it describes the land in verse 10. Rise and go, for this is no place of rest. When the people are given to sin, God is pleased to knock them off the land so at least the land can have rest. I don't even know what that means. What does it mean for the land to have rest? Well, it, 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 it means to not have the, the, uh, the abominations taking place on it that the people have been giving themselves to, right? It, it, it's, um, but that, that's what happens. 70, 70 um, years of Sabbath came to the land. And so God, in order to bring that rest, kicked the people off the land. What a rebuke. And therefore, God made this place a place of rest by getting rid of the people. What a hard... What a, what a terrible thing. You know, the only way to rectify this situation, son, is if I kick you out of my house. What a terrible situation to be in. But that's the situation that God was in in this. He's like, the only way for me to rectify this situation is to pull you off the land that I gave to you, to kick you out of my house. And then perhaps your children and your children's children will learn to fear the Lord. Okay, so this is no place of rest, but God would make it so by booting the, clean, the unclean people out. That's exactly the opposite of what the elites were thinking. The elites were thinking, well, this is a peaceful land. This is a glorious land. This is land. This is our land, right? And God comes along and says, no, not so fast. This is not your land because there is no rest and they will, they, their uncleanness will be removed uh, through this destruction. And then verse 11 is, is a strange, obscure thing that I thought long and hard about. Uh, we have um, this statement, if a man walking after wind and falsehood had told lies and said, I will speak out to you concerning wine and liquor, he would be spokesman to this people. Now somebody explain that to me. <laughs> somebody explain that to me. Well, I think what we have here is this is depicting a false prophet who holds out earthly blessings to the people. Wine and liquor are earthly blessings, okay? It's the harvest. It's the vintage. It's the fruit that comes off the land, right? So this is a false prophet you know, God has just said, there's destruction coming. You're going to be taken off the land. He's saying, no, let me talk to you about wine and liquor, the fruits of this land, the things that we've been given, the abundance of the earth held out as an indication of God's kindness. And, of course, God had promised this, right? If they're godly, the produce of the ground will abound. We can read that in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The produce of the ground will abound if they're godly. Um, 
But think about this. The people, he has told lies, it says, that second phrase. He has told lies. And what is his lie? I will speak out to you concerning wine and liquor, the abundance of the earth, the, the blessings of God. He would be spokesman to this people. In other words, the people prefer to hear lies about themselves and their situation. When destruction is coming, they like to hear the false prophets speaking of God's blessings. That's what they want to hear. Tickle our ears. Right? Give us falsehoods. Everything. Why are you such a downer, Micah? Why do you have to talk about our sins? Why do you have to talk about destruction? Why do you have to talk about conviction of sin and repentance and sackcloth and, and God's anger and wrath? Right? Why do you continually talk about these things? Can you not just talk to us with sweet words? Can't you just talk to us about, about you know, the, the, the barley harvest, which is so plentiful? And the goodness of our land. And, and the wonderful, wonderful things that God has given to us. Even if the vintage has been terrible, please lie to us and tell us that it's been good. I mean, there's no application of this to today. I can't figure out any applications <laughs> to our hearts. Right? We never want to be corrected. That's the application I have for us. We don't want to be corrected. We want Joel Osteen to preach to us. It'd be so sweet, man, to, to believe all those lies and to float on clouds of fluffiness. Right? To sink into the soft, cushy pillow of Joel Osteen's voice. We never want to be corrected. There are many places we could go if we never want to be corrected, if we don't want God's word to sanctify us. We can go, every, we can go places where the sole purpose of that church is to protect people from knowing the word of God. We prefer to believe those. <laughs> we just want to be made to feel good. We want to be made to feel good. I mean, that, that could be the, the, uh, the motto of our, our, our culture. Make me feel good. Make me feel good. Every one of our commercials is a little parable about that motto. Make me feel good. Oh, don't make me sing James Brown now. <laughs> Get that stuck in my head. Ah, feel yeah, um, <clears throat> warnings, warnings like God sent to his people through the ages, warnings through Abraham, warnings through Moses, warnings through uh, David, warnings through all the prophets, warnings through Jeremiah and Isaiah and Micah and, and all, all of our prophets, warnings like that are shunned as depressing and not only depressing, but heavy-handed. Heavy-handed. Which means they're mean. And not helpful to us. We can't bear up under rebuke. But that is what all of Scripture is. And if we don't like rebuke, 
What is it? What is what is Second Timothy three sixteen say? Somebody quote it to me. All, slow down. All Scripture is breathed is inspired by God and is profitable for. That's right. So it's profitable. The word of God is profitable for what? This is one of these statements about what the word of God is. Right? The word of God is, is inspired by God and is good for rebuke, reproof, teaching, correction, training in righteousness. That's what most of scripture is. So if, if we don't like rebuke, we don't like God's word. And if we don't like God's word... We don't like God. We think God is heavy-handed. We think God is a, a killjoy disciplinarian. But what he is is a father who loves his children and who desires to see them grow in grace and put off the flesh. And he's been so long-suffering, right? He's been so tender, to you and to me. He's been tender all throughout. He's been very patient with us, and yet he does rebuke us. I mean, think of most of the words of Jesus that we have recorded in our scripture. Most of it is hard words. Unless you hate mother, sister, brother, father, right? And even your own life then you have no part in the kingdom of God. Right? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better to go to heaven maimed than to burn in hell with two hands. Right? I mean, this is, these are hard words. And it's from beginning to end. And then I haven't even mentioned the Apostle Paul. Right? The Apostle Paul coming at us, the only, I wrote down this, I said, the only people who receive warnings from pastors and elders are those who consistently beat themselves with the word of God. (laughs) I mean, am I being morbid now? If you're not pounding yourself with the word of God when your elders and pastors who have charge over you in the Lord, as the scriptures say, come along, then you, you're not ready to receive the word of God. And it becomes like this terrible for you. But if you're consistently going to the word of God and you're saying, okay, I've fallen short here, I've fallen short here, I do need to put that to death, God has called me to that kind of purity. And, and, and then you go to, the, to, the, to prayer and ask God to supply what he has commanded in his word. Then you're ready to receive rebuke, right? So, so ready yourselves to receive rebuke from the pulpit by beating yourselves with the word of God every day. I mean, that's what the word of God does to me. I, I yeah. The word of God is able to pierce our souls. And we need to constantly come back to it. And 
It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart. And your heart is desperately wicked. It is sick. And the, the word of God judges your heart and then thoughts and intentions of it. And so, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's difficult to come to the word of God. But, but where else should you, where else could you go? You know, it's the words of life. So do we need constant course correction? Yes, but we, like Israel during Micah's time, would rather be flattered. We would rather be lied to. They would rather have these prophets talk to them about the bounty of God and how everything is great. And Jeremiah talks about the prophets who are saying, peace, peace. And, he's like, and Jeremiah's like, but there was no peace. And the wounds of the people, it says, are healed superficially. The end of this, I think, is a shift toward what we see in chapter 4. Chapter 3 is more rebuke for the, the rulers, especially. Chapter 4 is talking about these peaceful days. And this, this is the ministry of, the, of the, the prophets. The prophets, as well as rebuking the people for their sins, are always foreseeing what's to come. And the, the God bringing things to their end. And those things are good. And so we begin seeing that in verses 12 and 13. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. So their king goes before them and the Lord at their head. I think all of that is just giving uh, a vision of, of the... What, what, how God is going to bring all history to a close by bringing all of his people together. Now, of course, there's a fulfillment of this when the people leave Babylon and Zerubbabel brings them back to the land. But there's an ultimate fulfillment of this when, when all of God's people are gathered together into his presence and that whore Babylon, right, which stands for all the wicked, all the wicked. Um, structures, all the wickedness of the world are done away with, right, that we read of in Revelation, right? So Christ being the one who brings, uh, uh, who brings to an end that spiritual Babylon of this world. And so the scope increases as we go along. There's many fulfillments, but then there's the ultimate fulfillment and so anytime we, we read about this remnant or anytime we read about um, God bringing together his people, yeah, there may be a fulfillment in time, but there may be a uh, fuller fulfillment through Jesus Christ. And so uh, wonderful comfort, wonderful knowing that, but let's not remove ourselves too quickly from the rebuke and the call to live in godliness. Right? God has given us power over sin. God has not only saved us from our sins, he's saved us from the power of our sins. Do you believe that? If you're caught in habitual sin, you don't believe that. If you keep going back to the same sin day after day, it defeats you in a way that you think, no, there is no power over sin. I just, I've just got to get by. 
till the end and then squeak into heaven by the skin of my teeth. But scripture says that he has freed us from the power of sin over us. Right? If, if we are putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the spirit. So we have to avail ourselves of the spirit. We have to pursue the means of grace that God has given to us. And we will find that we can say no to our flesh. Those long besetting sins even we can say no to. I, I, that's the end of my sermon. But I have one other Calvin quote that I wanted to share that I skipped over. I thought it was great. Um, very contemporary. Calvin is thinking about how we prefer just to be comforted and not be rebuked. He he says this in his um, commentary, or his sermons on this passage. He says, Ah, all goes well, my friends. You are truly angels. This is him preaching to his congregation. Right? All goes well, my friends. You are truly angels. God loves you and will forever treasure you. Whatever benefits he has bestowed on you in the past, he will double in the future. Right? And he's using, I mean, this is in the midst of him thinking about these rebukes, and he's using these tones, I mean, ironically, just in the way that I would, right? That um, he's, he's rebuking them for what they want to hear and not what they need to hear um, from, from the word. And so... Anyway, that's, that's what I have from Micah this evening. Take some of these things away. Uh, read the passage again tonight. Think about them and, and put them into practice. Right? Don't let the preaching of the word of God be quickly forgotten. Don't be like those who look into the mirror and then forget what you look like. But let's try to be doers of the word of God and not merely hearers. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... These words written so many thousands of years ago that are still living and active. Father, thank you that that is your means of, of disciplining us and proving to us that we are your children. Lord, thank you that you have not left us or forsaken us, but that you have given us the attention we need as a sinful people. And we thank you most of all that you have supplied the righteousness of your son and you have clothed us in it. And Father, we pray that we would now, having all of your promises, having the holiness that you've given to us as a gift, that we would now perfect holiness in the fear of you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.